My name is Anthony King, and I'm telling the stories behind your favorite cop movies. This is the all-new Neon Badges. Sometimes a town and usually a giant metropolis to make a movie, NARC starts and ends with one single man. Joe Carnahan was raised outside Detroit, Michigan, and later in Northern California. As a kid, he was obsessed with movies. I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark a million times, he says. I knew that film inside and out. Same thing with Jaws. I loved Star Wars, but it was something so big and so beyond my understanding at the time, I didn't have the same kind of connection I had with the other films. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is still huge with me. I've watched it easily over a hundred times. Duel was another one. For some reason, I was always up late as a kid, and that thing was always on. When I found out Spielberg directed, I went out of my way to find that movie on Late Night. Carnahan graduated high school in 1987, followed by a short stint at San Francisco State University and later transferring to California State University, Sacramento, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Filmography. While at CSU Sacramento, he wrote a short film called Gunpoint that was inspired by Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. Shortly after graduating from college, he became employed in the promotional department of Sacramento's K-Max TV, producing short films and television spots. While working at K-Max, Carnahan wrote and directed his first film, Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane. If I'm nothing, I'm a blatant, shameless opportunist, he says. After doing multiple short films on video and finally landing the TV job, I looked around the station and saw a lot of equipment and editing gear with a lot of free time on its hands. Defying the station's edict about not utilizing company equipment for personal projects, I set about doing the film using every single resource I could scrounge for free. I did the whole 30-hour straight edit over the weekend, sleeping underneath the editing console and having one of the air ops wake me up after brief naps. The secret behind the whole $7,300 figure was shooting on film and then posting the entire film on video. I knew I had to keep all the costs down because I was dipping into some savings money and hitting up some people for cash. I didn't want to start ringing up excessive of debt on something that was, for all intents and purposes, done on a lark. Carnahan's micro-budget indie gained cult and critical acclaim after it premiered at the New York Independent Feature Film Market and at Sundance Film Festival in 1998. How do you get a $7,300 movie in one of the biggest film festivals in the world? Blast your way in. Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane. Sundance 98. Midnight. By this time, that short film script he had written in college, Gunpoint, had turned into a feature-length script, and it included a title change, NARC. The original short script was based around this small, isolated incident, but by the time he expanded it, it turned into a huge personal story. Now, while Carnahan doesn't normally write with specific actors in mind, there were two names that he had on a mental short list. Fuck you! You fucking child, just... Back the fuck off. Ray Liotta was born in Newark, New Jersey, and at the age of six months was adopted. He grew up in Union Township, just outside of Newark, and graduated from high school in 1973. After high school, Ray attended the University of Miami, where he studied acting and performed in musicals such as Cabaret, Dames at Sea, Oklahoma, and Sound of Music. He received a degree in fine arts in 1978 and moved to New York City, where he got a job as a bartender at the Schubert Theaters. Within six months, he had an agent and booked a couple small TV movies before landing a recurring role as Joey Perini on the soap opera Another World. In 1981, Leota quit the soap in order to move to L.A. and try his hand in the film industry. He made his film debut in 1983 in The Lone Lonely Lady alongside Pia Zadora, 
and three years later booked his first major acting role in Jonathan Demme's Something Wild with Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. That role, only a second in a motion picture, earned him his first Golden Globe nomination. Ray's next big role came in 1989, where he played the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams. The following year, Ray starred in a little movie maybe some of you've heard about. It's called Goodfellas. Anyways, for the next 12 years, Leota went on a tear, starring in movies like Unlawful Entry, No Escape, Copland, Hannibal, and Blow. Now, the second person Carnahan had on his shortlist was Jason Patrick. He says, in terms of actors of his age and generation, I don't know if there's anyone better. Leota had similar sentiments. He's made a habit of only doing films he truly believes in. He had the right energy and was mature enough, and wasn't going to try to compete on camera since the character of Oak is basically a bully. Patrick was born in Queens to actress Linda Miller and actor-playwright Jason Miller. If those genes weren't great enough, his grandfather was Jackie Gleason. Patrick landed his first role as a drug-addicted teenager in Tough Love, a made-for-TV movie with Lee Remick and Bruce Dern playing his parents. He continued his rebellious teen role streak with Solar Babies the following year and his big breakout in 1987 as Michael in Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. Patrick would then appear in several more movies such as Rush, Geronimo, an American legend, Sleepers, and Speed 2 Cruise Control. So, Carnahan had his script, he had a couple actors in mind to play these two heavy roles, and he was off to pre-production. The first thing Carnahan needed to do was find a producer who would back him. He says, after Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane, studios started taking notice. NARC had the trappings of being considered an independent film just by virtue of its incredibly dark premise and the fact that it's almost exclusively dialogue-driven. So I wasn't exactly sure how far it would stray into studio waters, but my initial guess was not very. Gavin Pallone, who was a proven affinity for just this type of material, had been fantastic. We were sending out the salvos to see if anything would come back. Now, Gavin Pallone was an agent-turned-producer who had produced Joel Schumacher's 8mm, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and Stir of Echoes at the time. Unfortunately, Pallone eventually passed on the script. On the other hand, Leota was coming around, and like I said, Carnahan always thought Leota was the ideal actor to play the character of Henry Oak. Ray's a big believer in doing his homework, he says. He needed to know exactly what he was getting into. Luckily, Leota loved the script, so we watched Carnahan's first film, and then the two met up and just hung out and shot the shit. From that very first conversation, Leota loved that Carnahan knew exactly what he wanted. Leota remembers, this was going to be a minimal budget indie film, and after talking with Joe, I was confident that he knew exactly how to get to the finish line. After that, Leota and his wife at the time, Michelle Grace, were on board and became fierce advocates of Carnahan and the film. And bonus, Jason Patrick signed on for the role of Nick Tellis. So Leota and Grace agreed to become producers, and the hunt started for money. All in all, it took about a year to get even a little financing just to start production, and I'll come back to the money situation here in a minute. From the beginning, Carnahan always had his story set in Detroit. He says, Detroit is the great American city they gave up on. Having grown up just outside of Detroit, Carnahan knew the area. He could always picture it. It's an industrial wasteland with a unique sense of despair, loneliness, desolation, and isolation that would work especially well against Tellus's emotional landscape and journey, he says. With that in mind, Carnahan had always pictured being able to shoot in Detroit. But alas, budgetary restrictions just wouldn't allow for it. Instead, they opted for the next best thing, Toronto. The weather, the neighborhoods, the colors, they all pretty much matched what Carnahan saw in Detroit. 
especially since they'd be shooting in the worst part of Toronto. Now, Carnahan's script was always an homage to director William Friedkin in his film The French Connection, especially the ambiguous ending with Popeye Doyle running through the doorway at the end and hearing the gunshot, he says. I love those characters who exist in a gray area, the netherworld between good and bad. You've got Jason Patrick playing Nick Tellis, a recovering junkie who abandons his family for his work. Then you have Ray Liotta's Henry Oak, a character steeped in Pacino and De Niro, and another homage to pre-Miranda cops of the 60s and 70s. Patrick in particular was thrilled with the script and the chance to work with Ray. Henry Oak was the role Ray had waited his whole career to play, he says. As far as preparations for their roles, Leota and Patrick didn't really have any actual rehearsals. Carnahan and his two leads didn't really start digging into the characters until they got to Toronto. It was much more of a forum of discussions every morning. Carnahan never felt like his script was the Bible. He was always open to interpretations of these two complicated characters. So let's get back to the money here. They'd found financing, where from, who knows. It wasn't much, but that was expected. Leota and Patrick were barely taking paychecks as it was. Carnahan remembers them fondly. They could have easily taken other gigs for way more money, but these were true blue blood guys who were passionate about the craft of acting, and they believed in their director. So the loan was in place, locations were scouted, the crew was assembled, day one of shooting approached, and then the money fell through. I want to lead into the money struggles during production with this from Carnahan. After the minor success of Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane, he had people knocking down his door to work with him. He says, The money the studios bandy about is frightening. To be on the receiving end of the money is everything good and bad about the business. I lucked out in the most amazing way and that I'm in a position now where a lot of people in the studio realm want to work with me. I feel obliged to do it too, since I've been dreaming of it as a kid. Moreover, when I look around at my friends and some guys I work with, I realize what a rare spot I find myself in. So few cats get a crack at this. I pursue my own films, which are doggedly my own sole creation. And then if I need to, I'll hire out for studio gigs. You can't go wrong there, just like John Huston. For every Moby Dick and Red Badge of Courage, there is wise blood and fat city. That's the kind of career I want. Health and dental for my family, money for the kids' college. These are practical, pragmatic things that I need as a father and a husband. Beyond that, if I can blow people away from time to time with my own movies that I stamp my own name on and keep my street cred intact, beautiful. Carnahan knew from the get-go of NARC that it wasn't going to be easy. Just like Leota and Patrick, he could have easily taken a studio gig, but then more than likely get comfortably stuck cranking out forgettable action flats on every two years. He said no thanks to the millions to create things that were solely his. So there was no money. Leota and Grace would be on the phone every single night during the shoot trying to track down money. NARC was shot over 28 days, and every goddamn night they had to scrounge together money just to buy film for the next day, not to mention paying the crew which didn't necessarily happen on a regular basis. So naturally, this caused a mutinous situation at times. Carnahan and Leota and Grace tried to keep this all under wraps, of course, but when the crew saw that their checks weren't coming on time, things became difficult. It's hard to direct a crew and get the best out of people if they don't know if their paychecks will clear, Carnahan says. It was at this time, when money was hard to come by, that Jason Patrick's character and dedication to Joe Carnahan showed. Patrick remembers, my agent called me one day and said, If your money doesn't show up by Wednesday, do not go to work on Thursday. 
but I truly believed in this film, and I didn't want to see something so devastating happen to Joe, so I kept working. And I did get paid, even if it wasn't until months later. So obviously, they eventually did find the money, but look at the list of the producers on NARC and you'll count 21 names. And for anyone who might not know, the term producer is a very general term. It might mean someone putting up a chunk of money for the movie to get made. It might mean someone who gets the movie released in theaters or on home video. It can also mean someone who will bust their ass just to see this idea come to fruition, which is what Ray Liotta and Michelle Grace were doing. So first they turned to Randall Emmett and George Furla of Emmett Furla Films. Then it was Diane Nabatoff at Tiara Blue Films. There was a pharmacologist, and then there were some other nefarious characters, shall we say. The point is, they eventually got their money and everyone eventually got paid. So, back to the actual movie making. Carnahan always thought it was important and appropriate to open the film with a shot of Detroit to help solidify the setting. So, Joe, Ray, Jason, and a small crew hopped in a van and headed to Detroit to get that shot. And while they were there, they figured, hey, we got a day here, let's shoot as much as possible. So, that's what they did. They shot as many exteriors as possible. Jason walking into the police station, the skyline, and my personal favorite part of the movie, the street interview. So Carnahan and company met up with Ken Williams, a Detroit cop who drove around in the van with them looking for locations to shoot. They had one day and 40 to 50 setups planned, so it was all real guerrilla style, just like Larry Cohen back in the 70s and 80s. When it came time for the canvassing scene, Williams gave Patrick his actual shield because he said these people could spot a fake from a mile. Patrick recalls that day, I said, wire me up. Williams says, watch what you do with your hands. We're in a bad part of town and you never know what these guys will do. So I hop out of the van and I just start interacting with real people on the street. As soon as we got our shot, a producer would run up to the person and have them sign a release. It was running gun from sun up to sun down. Because of the money situation, Carnahan and the local Toronto crew didn't really get along at all. That said, he did have some superstars working with him. His director of photography, for example. Alex Napomniashi had worked with Gary Sherman on Poltergeist 3 and Lisa, Fred Decker on an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and Todd Haynes on Safe, to name a few of the projects he'd shot. Again, for those that might not know, the director of photography or cinematographer is in charge of the camera and lighting crews. They usually assist the director in choosing the right lenses for the camera, the type of film stock they'll be using, light placement, color, etc., etc., I did not deserve a DP that good, Carnahan says. Napon the Ashy wanted to apply the style he used on safe, so they lit everything from above to keep it as natural looking as possible. They wanted the exteriors to be cold and blue and the interiors to be warm. In Talis' home, for example, it starts as warm as possible, and as the case starts to take over his life, they drain the color out of the interior to almost match the exterior. Like I mentioned earlier, Carnahan knew exactly what he wanted and how to get there, so he preferred the handheld camera to setting up on a dolly. Every time we mounted the camera to a dolly, he says, things just fell apart and it'd blow up in our faces. The handheld approach became our aesthetic for the documentary style, but it was also pragmatic because we just didn't have the time to set up the dolly. We wanted the film to feel like you were eavesdropping in on a real-life event by using natural light and sound. Some of the most visually interesting shots came during the flashbacks in the tunnel where Calvez is shot. Carnahan's entire goal of the film was to get the audience to only care about what really happens in the tunnel. Oak and Tellus go to the edges of hell to find the truth and Carnahan wanted the audience to go right along with him. Truth is an intellectual concept, he says. A very subjective experience. Show five people the same thing and they'll all have different interpretations. 
All the flashbacks are shot on reversal stock to make that clear delineation between the past and present. Reversal stock creates a positive image rather than a negative. Think of your old film negative strips you'd get in the sleeves with your photos after you got your pictures developed. On a negative, the lightest areas of the picture appear darkest, and the darkest areas appear lightest. Reversal film basically flips that and you get the real colors and shades. It's an older stock that they used in the 60s that they would then cross-process as negative film. This then creates a sort of surreal quality. It's vibrant yet dull at the same time, which is exactly what Carnahan wanted since the tunnel scene was supposed to be very murky. The goal was to shoot the action out of focus but have the rain be in focus, he says. So Tellus is reading the incident report, but he doesn't know what really happened. He doesn't know who's there, but he does know what rain looks like. It's a very simple yet very effective concept. At the end then, Carnahan's idea from the beginning was to transition from that reversal stock to regular film negative to show the audience the truth. It's absolutely brilliant. Let's talk about some of the locations in Toronto. Most of the scenes were shot on location, meaning production went to actual places to shoot rather than a soundstage at some studio. The house where Oak and Tellus find LaFleur dead in the bathtub belonged to the former manager of the Rolling Stones. They walled off sections of the giant grand staircase to make it seem more labyrinthine. Or the building where Oak and Tellus go to find the cracked out junkie who just set his girlfriend on fire, played hilariously by Carlos Ortiz, wasn't exactly the Ritz-Carlton. It was a skeezy, transient hotel that production added more graffiti to in order to skeeze it up even more. The widow Calvez's house was at the end of a dilapidated street in Toronto. Watch that scene, which is expertly staged, and you'll see the background of oak filled with barbed wire, a broken fence, busted signs, snarling trees, all to represent Oak's character. And behind Tellus, nothing except a half-built billboard. None of it was placed there by production. It was just a perfect location. Or the building where Oak and Tellus find Deacon. It was a rundown tenement apartment that everyone says was 100 degrees inside. Deacon was played by a local Toronto rapper named Bishop who had never acted before. In that scene, he gets shot. That meant Bishop had to wear squibs, little packets of fake blood that explode when someone gets shot on camera. The squibs are electronically controlled, so Bishop is connected to a bunch of electrical wires. Patrick walks on set and starts giving him shit. Whatever you do, man, don't sweat. That shit will start to short out and you'll be electrocuted. Where is it? Where is it? Oh my god, this must be one of those new refrigerator safes that lock, you dumb fuck. What's all this? Huh? What's all this? Huh? Oh, bagels and guns. What do you know? You're going to the prison. Felony count your deep block now. Now tell us who sold you. One day, Carnahan showed up on set to shoot the scene in Captain Cheever's office. He started looking around the set and noticed something peculiar. Behind Cheever's desk, the set decorators had put up pictures and posters of hockey icons like Bobby Orr and Gordy Howe. Now, to be fair, they were shooting in Canada where hockey's a religion. But Chai McBride is a big black man. So Carnahan turns around and he says, 
Guys, this is a hard-boiled black police lieutenant. I don't think he's much of a hockey fan. Luckily, Wayne Godfrey, the costume supervisor and a black man, brought in pictures of his family to replace the pictures of super white Canadians. And the chop shop. So many critics have compared this scene to QT's Reservoir Dogs. But Carnahan wrote it as an ode to pre-Miranda cops where they locked their suspects up at the scene and beat the confessions out of them. So this was filmed at a real chop shop in Toronto that had been condemned in underwater for six months. Years of gunk and debris had built up on the floors and the walls. They actually found several groups of homeless people living there. That production didn't even kick out. So the crew comes in, doesn't touch a thing, and just sets up to shoot. Patrick says it was disgusting. It was the most miserable place I've ever worked in. It was colder inside than it was outside. It was such a shithole the city tore it down two months after they shot there. This all added to the tone and feel of the film, of course. Napomni Ashi and his lighting crew installed HMIs, big arc lamps, on the ceiling. This, in turn, created lots of heat. With it being winter in the great north snow had built up on the roof and the lights generated so much heat it melted all the snow which then cascaded down the walls and through the ceilings creating a series of waterfalls the other thing was patrick had gotten extremely sick at this point in production he had 102 fever and physically couldn't move so when tellus is questioning the two guys it's actually carnahan reading patrick's lines film wasn't really physically demanding, Patrick still put in a lot of work to play Talos. Todd Merritt was an NYPD narcotics detective who acted as the technical advisor on the film, and he worked especially close with Patrick. Merritt put him through the paces and showed him how to properly hold the gun, how to make a corner, and how he should move in certain instances. With that in mind, the opening scene with Talos chasing the junkie through the park is about as intense as any movie gets, but it needed a complete overhaul from the original script. It needed more velocity, more brutality. So here we have Talos busting out of a building chasing a suspect at full tilt. Patrick is a fit dude who'd be able to do it, including jumping over a seven-foot-high fence. And a chase like this in real life would be absolutely exhausting. Carnahan wanted to convey what it'd feel and sound like, but neither Napomniashi nor his camera operators would be able to keep up with Patrick during this sprint. So they hired a stuntman to operate the handheld and basically just chase after Patrick. This all aided in getting the audience to experience firsthand what this scenario would feel like. And while they would have preferred to just use natural on-camera sound for this, it just wasn't possible. So they shot MOS which stands for motor out of sync, meaning without sound, and then later had Patrick wear a mic and sprint on a track to pick up the sounds of his footfalls and heavy breathing. Again, this all speaks to the dedication of Jason Patrick. Remember, every morning was a meeting of the minds to discuss how each scene would play out, as opposed to rehearsing the script. Patrick felt some of the most important scenes of the film were going to be the moments with his character and his family. It showed the dichotomy between Tellus's family life and his cop life, family being the sanctuary. He thought they were crucial for the balancing act of the film. That all came from Jason, Carnahan says. Everything with him is in the eyes. He has this extraordinary trait to be able to emote in that fashion. For instance, in the chop shot, they shot that scene with two cameras, one full-time on Leota while he's yelling at the suspects, and one camera full-time on Patrick just to get his non-verbal reactions. Or the scene where Oak and Telus are sitting in the car, and Oak is telling his story about his wife and the little girl he rescues. Leota is the one with this huge, moving monologue while Patrick just sits there. But Patrick is just as compelling as Leota here because he's not acting like he's listening, he's actually listening. Now, Leota and Patrick never really hung out off camera. This wasn't because they didn't like each other, and these guys aren't really method actors either. The goal was to have these two men develop a real relationship in front of the camera. Carnahan and Impomniashi went to great lengths to keep Oak and Telus apart. They hardly
hardly share a frame together, and when they do, there's always something dividing them. This was something carefully planned and orchestrated by the filmmakers. Going back to that scene in the car, Carnahan was inspired by Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight for this moment. The camera is watching each actor through the windows of the car. In the glass, we see a reflection of the tree branches obstructing Oak's face, representing his psychological torment. You really have to concentrate to see his eyes, drawing you in more and more. And then notice Telus through the window. Nothing. No reflections, no obstructions. These are little things that usually go unnoticed upon a first-time watch, but were intentionally and carefully orchestrated, making the film more meaningful, more powerful, more amazing to see. Carnahan likes to run takes longer than normal because nuances come out of the actor the longer they're in that moment. He'll hold off on shouting cut for a minute or two just to see what happens. As a director, he says, you have to trust and believe in your actors. It makes you realize just how many talented people are in the world. Now, that scene in the car was filmed on Leota's last day of shooting. This is the big this is the big man we're talking about here. He's 6'3, six, 6'4, six, imposing. He's got that iconic devilish smile and booming cackle that'll make your balls crawl into your throat. And then put him in that trench coat. He looked like a house and was downright terrifying to be around, Carnahan says. But that scene in the car was such a change of pace. Leota had been living in this character and became accustomed to bullying people and kicking ass on camera. Carnahan pulled him aside before rolling and said, The audience will believe the human side of this character if you can pull this off. And then you see this guy go into the zone, and it's the most amazing thing. It's something really extraordinary. Production wrapped, and it was sent to the cutting room for editor John Gilroy. Remember how I said Carnahan had a few superstars in his crew? Gilroy was one of them. He had cut nearly a dozen films at this point, including Billy Madison and Ted Demi's Who's the Man, and assisted on films like James Glickenhouse's McBain and Demi's The Ref. With this job, though, he says, it was challenging. It gave me a chance to do something I'd never done before. Now, NARC runs about an hour and 45 minutes, but it could have been much, much longer. While filming, Carnahan had to throw out about a dozen setups because there just wasn't any light at 4.30 in the afternoon in Toronto during the winter. I'm glad now, he says. We would have ended up overcutting it. Now what we get is just the story's component parts. This also meant Gilroy pretty much used everything they shot. Gilroy and Carnahan approached the editing process solely on the characters. The cuts would be dictated by what the characters were doing or how they were feeling. Carnahan would take the weekends off during editing to spend with his family, and by Monday he'd come back into the editing bay, and Gilroy would show him some of his wild ideas, like the title card showing up 10 minutes into the movie, or making three quick jump cuts while Talus is going over the fence in the opening chase, which he thought added to the velocity that they were going for. And then for the canvassing scene in Detroit, the initial plan was just to have it be a simple split screen. Gilroy says to Carnahan, you know, if we can do two, why not do four? Now, while in the cutting room, Carnahan doesn't particularly like to work with a temp score. The scene has to work on its own before being adorned with music, he says. And then he got the call he'd been waiting for. It was Cliff Martinez, and he was available to score the movie. Maybe you know Cliff Martinez as Nicholas Wending Reffin's guy, or Soderbergh's guy. Either way, you know the man is brilliant. So now things were really starting to come together for Carnahan. He had two powerhouse actors, an incredible supporting cast, a brilliant DP, an ace editor, and now one of the greatest modern film composers. So Martinez starts sending in a few pieces, but there was a problem. 
Carnahan didn't think they'd be able to get away with it at first. The score is this collage of different sounds. It wasn't exactly what they were expecting. Martinez was using stuff he'd found at junkyards, banging on them, and then manipulating the sound. Things like plastic tubing and metal from the sides of airplanes. But the more Carnahan and Gilroy listened, the more they realized these sounds were adding an emotional element they didn't even know was there. So Martinez kept sending in more and more stuff. It was all starting to gel together, and then nothing. Nobody had heard from Martinez in a while, and they were nearly ready to start screening for test audiences. So Carnahan panicked and called a friend in Michigan for the last two cues. And once you know it, almost at the exact same time, Martinez comes through with his finest work. And so now the short script Joe Carnahan wrote in college had become a feature-length, hard-boiled cop film. Just like his first film, Carnahan made it back to Utah to show Narc at the Sundance Film Festival as a nominee of the Grand Jury Prize. The film also made it into the prestigious Cognac and Stidges genre film festivals in Europe. Carnahan remembers a lady at Sundance coming up to him after the screening. Why did you have to make this movie? My sister is in tears and my cousin is sick to her stomach. But it was there at Sundance where Carnahan got recognition from one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. Tom Cruise was pinned to his seat the entire time watching Narc. Afterwards, he and his producing partner, Paula Wagner, sat down with Carnahan and told him how much they loved his film. They saw how very clear he was in his direction. Carnahan told him what they had gone through to get it made, and Cruz and Wagner became inspired. Cruz says, The passion on screen is just as passionate off screen to be able to get this movie made. Joe got everything out of this film a director could hope for. Wagner says he's a force of nature. His commitment, his enthusiasm, he has an infectious way of bringing people into the world he inhabits. They offered to help get it distributed, and a while later, Carnahan got a call with the news. Paramount Pictures was going to buy it. He was stunned. During production, they were scraping together money every night just to buy film for the next day. And now, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner were producers, and Paramount was going to release his film. NARC opened in New York and L.A. on December 20, 2002. Unfortunately, the widest release it ever got was 822 screens, but the movie still pulled in a domestic gross of $10.4 million. Movies like Just Married, Catch Me If You Can, Two Weeks Notice, About Schmidt, Chicago, and Made in Manhattan were dominating the box office. And then along comes this little gritty cop thriller, shouting to the world there will always be directors with a crystal clear vision of the story only they can tell who will fight tooth and nail to get their dream on the screen and in front of people. Narc was pretty much a critical success. Elvis Mitchell, the New York Times, gave it three and a half out of five stars. Joe Carnahan has made a believable, fleshed-out film where men's worst impulses lead to their ruin. He's considerably more measured about the doses of adrenaline administered in NARC, and we're rewarded with a cohesive and mostly coherent story of a guilt-ridden cop who has nowhere to turn. Mr. Patrick is a specialist in repressed intensity, and he clenches his lower jaws if trying to give Tom Cruise a run for his money in the I'm-so-wired sweepstakes. Mr. Leota has acted the runaway train of a cop so many times that playing a sociopath with a badge couldn't possibly offer him anything new. But he and Mr. Patrick both surprise. Perhaps because NARC isn't the standard issue story of family dysfunction, it didn't stir the air much at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It's hard to imagine that Mr. Carnahan's command of the film and the enjoyably ratty slices of life that Oak and Nick carve out didn't impress the crowd of Park City, Utah. It could be that the references in NARC to other movies didn't fall into the somber 70s family melodrama 
dramas that the majority of Sundance entries so modestly emulate. Whatever your feelings are about NARC, you probably won't doze off during the picture. NARC is convincing, an entertaining, grimy view of the traps of machismo tucked inside a cop thriller. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave the film 3 out of 4 stars. This compulsively watchable police thriller comes on like gangbusters with a cop chasing a perp. Simple stuff. But ballsy director Joe Carnahan, a real find, gives the scene the breathless urgency of something out of the French connection. Narc is a no-bull throwback to 1970s action films. It zips along with B-movie verve while adding the rich details and go-for-broke acting that heralds something special. Patrick has his best role in years, and Ray Liotta, firing on all cylinders is surefire Oscar bait as a cop you don't trust. Not if you're smart. And of course, Roger Ebert, also with three out of four stars. If many cop partner movies have an undertone of humor, even a splash of the odd couple, this one is hard-bitten and grim. The team consists of bad cop and bad cop. The twist is that both of them are good at their work. Their problem is taking the job too personally. Tellus and Oak do not fit the usual pattern of cop partners in the movies. Either of them could be the lead. Neither one is supporting. The movie's writer and director, Joe Carnahan, brings a rough, aggressive energy to the picture. His first film, Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane, was all style, but here he creates believable characters. His screenplay stays within the broad outlines of the cop-buddy formula, but brings fresh energy to the obligatory elements. It is no surprise, for example, that Tellus' wife doesn't want him back out on the streets and that there's tension between his home life and his job. This is an ancient action cliché. A man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. But the details of the domestic scenes ring true. In terms of its urban wasteland, the movie descends to a new level of grittiness. These streets aren't mean, they're cruel, and to work them is like being the garbage man in hell. Leota, heavier wearing a beard, leaves behind his days as a handsome leading man and begins edging into interesting Brian Cox territory. Patrick, ten years after Rush, looks less like he's playing a cop and more like he might be one. And perhaps the highest praise came from one of Carnahan's heroes, William Friedkin, whose wife was head of Paramount at the time. She gave her husband a VHS tape and said, You might like this. The director's a big fan of yours. Now, that isn't the first time he'd heard that, but he thought he'd give it a go anyways. Freakin' was mesmerized. He thought, this is the most honest film about police procedure I've ever seen. He says, every good cop has the soul of a criminal, meaning good cops can think like the criminal. And he was equally impressed with Leota's and Patrick's performances. The heart of NARC is the personal relationships, says Freakin'. This film will last because of its performances. Directors like Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Spike Jones, and Joe Carnahan have taken cinema further than we ever did. But the American public hasn't caught up with them yet. Few American films carry the weight that NARC does. calls NARC a film dealing in relative morality. What does truth mean? What's it worth? How does it affect you? Leota says, if we were making a Hollywood movie, maybe we would have tied it up better at the end. But we were in indie and trying to be as truthful and real and raw and honest to the story as possible. Carnahan knew what he wanted his film to look like, and this is the film he set out to make. I'm incredibly proud of it, he says. I got a chance to work with some amazing people. Their talent made this film that much better. Their support made all the difference. His favorite thing about the whole experience was that it was made and edited in a vacuum. 
No one was ever standing over his shoulder, riding him. The hassle of getting it made was absolutely worth it to not be bothered by anyone. He says, if people don't remember Narc in 20 years, that's okay because it's about living in the moment, and that moment was pretty great. And I'll wrap it up with a final word from Joe Carnahan from when Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane premiered at Sundance. I think the fact that I'm 6'2 and go about 260 is maybe casting against type a bit in the indie film world. The trend of the quote-unquote auteurs on the American indie scene are of the pale, palsied, reclusive type. Now, I love all film. I don't care who makes it. If it's effective and innovative and sticks with you and makes you think, I'm for it. I don't care what the filmmaker looks like, how often he masturbates, where his zits are, if he lives with his mom, I don't care. I don't put on false modesty because that shit never fits. The fact that I have an admitted big mouth, talk shit, and otherwise don't look the part has cast a pallor over me in my film. I know festival programmers that haven't taken my film because of their dislike, not so much for the film, but for me or who I'm perceived to be. And I tell you, on all counts, I could give a shit. As long as my wife and kids love me, they're the only ones who ever need to know who I really am. My eternal thanks go out to you, the listeners, for your support. Your support for me and the show moves me deeply. Really, it does. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at AK Donnelly. That's A-K-D-O-N-E-L-L-Y. My name is Anthony King, and I'll see you next time. Bye.